Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, part of the Starship Sofa Broadcasting Corporation. I hope everyone's fine and dandy this Wednesday. Today we have a fantastic story by Gwyneth Jones. Well, judging by last week's comments on the forums and a couple of emails I got with regarding the Joe Haldeman story, I'm going to read a couple of them emails out and a couple of mentions on the forums as well. It's because basically quite a few people have gotten emails from say mm, that wasn't really strictly science fiction. So where does the Starship Sofa? This is what I kind of want to address now. Where does the Starship Sofa lie with? Stories, do you know what I mean? Because I suppose you could go down what Steve Ely's doing with Skatepod and have all different sections, you know, like, or different podcasts for different ones. Does Starship Sofa just stick to like one tiny little niche of science fiction, or do it sometimes fade the edges and take in other things? And I think that's where I would like to go. Do you know what I mean? If it was just science fiction for the stories, then you know you would probably get the chance to miss the likes of. Joe Haldeman's story, do you know what I mean? So, and if it's, I mean, basically, I'm going to be picking science fiction writers, and it's only, you know, what they kind of do on the outside, you know, like they kind of dabble in other genres as well. But I think best if, well, this is me personally, do you know what I mean? If, if everyone writes in and says, God, stick to science fiction for God's sake, I'll do that. But I think with regards to stories, It'd be nicer if the, just like, the edges were blurred and sometimes we take in a little bit of, you know, kind of fantasy and kind of horror. Just see how that goes. I mean, the Joe Haldeman was, you know, a bit of a blunt, blunt knife there. Do you know what I mean? It had some kind of 
moments in there that were a little bit disturbing, should we say. And I got I got a lovely email as well from Dave Cooper. And I don't want to go into all the kind of Dave Cooper's email, but just what he did say was, and I kind of hold my hands up high here and admit that, there was the odd swear word in there and there was some graphic descriptions in there. And, you know, really, I, kind of, I guess I should have put a warning out. Now, I don't know. See, I'm not really that really I'm clever enough to know which words are swear words and that, but, you know, like the rating system. So what I think is, because I think it needs to be addressed just in case there is young, young'uns, pups, listening to this, these audio stories, you know, and some of them kind of get, especially I've got some, for Halloween, I've got some stories of Paul F. Wilson. And I give, actually I give this, one of the stories to Julie Davis, who's going to narrate this one. And Julie just said, I can't read it. Slitting eyelids off and all sorts. She says, Tony, what the hell are you doing there? So I think what I'll do is I'll I'll not kind of give it a, a kind of rating. You know, this is a kind of PG. This is an X-rated story. I'll just say it be advised that this one might contain images or descriptions that you might want to listen first before you allow children to do it. I think that's probably the way I'm going to go because, like I say, if I start putting ratings on it or even start saying things, you know, because I've got a story by Cage Baker called Likely Lad, which is coming up, and it's a cracking funny story. But there's images in there, do you know, that I just kind of mentioned, the th- a little bit of a theme. You think, oh, not even going to listen to that one. So there you go. Now you're all be waiting to hear this Cage Baker story come out, but... So that's what I think I'm going to do with that story. And with, sorry, with stories, I'm going to just really say, this one, just make sure you listen to it first before you allow your children to listen to it. I mean, I don't even know if children do listen to the show, do you know what I mean? And grumpy old fart like me, bloody whittling on. And with regards to just sticking to science fiction stories, I think I'm just going to kind of do me own thing and just kind of fade the edges. And sometimes, like I say, if I get a nice story, it's all about the author, do you know what I mean? And it's it's all about kind of the authors I grew up with and new authors that are coming, that are people are recommending, you know what I mean? If I can get a, a story by them, this is what I want to do. I just want to just let everyone listen to it, you know? So let us know what you think on that. And I think I'm waffling away far too long here. I will get into the Gwyneth Jones story. Now, for you that don't know Gwyneth Jones, mostly she writes mostly science fiction and near-future high fantasy with kind of strong themes based on, on gender and feminism. She's the winner of two World Fantasy Awards, a British Science Fiction Award for a short story, Children of the Night Award as well, from the, the Dracula Society, and she's got an, an Arthur C. Clarke Award, the Philip K. Dick Award as well, and she was co-winner with the James Triptree Jr. Award. They say she's often compared with Ursula K. Le Guin, but it's it's really it's up to you, up to you to kind of make that decision or not. I mean, when you hear this story, this story is a really you know a nice good story. It's I was quite taken by it, and especially with the narration as well. It kind of you're just lost in this kind of world Gwyneth Jones has got. She lives in Brighton, England, with her husband and son. And I asked, I dropped Gwyneth Jones an email, and I asked her, I says, what is this story all about last Cenerentola. She says it's t- the name's taken from the Rossini opera. She says it's about fairy tales like C21 magical technology. But deep down, she says it's secretly a kind of a travelogue and nostalgic for campsite, beach, and culture summers on, on the Mediterranean. And Gwyneth Jones, look out for, she's got a collection coming out from PS Publishing at the end of the year. So links to Gwyneth Jones' site. Narration today is from Julie Davis. You can actually you can listen to Julie Davis at her podcast, Forgotten Classics. There will be a link there to to Julie's podcast. And if you go onto our, actually our website, you can hear excerpts from 
she covers really all sorts. You know, Shirley Jackson, she's got horror, she's got humour, she does the detective story. And she's actually narrating from her great-grandfather wrote this book about South American folk tales. She's actually narrating that. You know, that, that's a great idea, that. You know what I mean? To have someone in your family who's, or your past family, great-grandfather, get them stories narrated. Wow. So without further ado, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents La Cenerentola by Gwyneth Jones Act 1. The Scholar Gypsies My first thought, when I saw the sisters, was that they were simply too perfect. They had to be identical twins, about sixteen years old, tall, but not too tall, sun-kissed golden skin, rounded and slender limbs, long golden hair, blue eyes. They were walking in step, arm in arm, whispering together, identical even in their graceful movements. One pushed back her hair. The other brushed an insect from her immaculate white shorts. Each gesture seemed a mirror image of the other. Impossibly perfect. Then I saw the mother, strolling along behind. She had to be their mother. The likeness was too close for any other relationship. And I thought perhaps I understood. The older model, or should one say the original, was a very good-looking woman, a blonde with long legs, regular features, and lightly tanned skin. Her eyes behind her sunglasses were no doubt just as blue. But there were details, lips that were a little narrow, a square jaw, a figure not so exactly proportioned, that added up to something less than flawless beauty. I tried not to stare, though of course those girls must be used to open-mouth admiration. Then I realized with pleasure that this amazing trio was actually approaching us. The older woman was about to speak. I sat up with a welcoming smile. Suze and Bobby and I were in Europe for the summer. This had become the pattern of our lives in the last few years. We spent our winters in New Mexico, where I taught philosophy and Suze worked as a software engineer. Every summer we crossed the Atlantic. As yet we had no fixed abode over here, but we were looking. We saw our travels as a series of auditions. This summer we were considering the Mediterranean for the role of our summer home. But we had fled from an overcrowded villa party on the Côte d'Azur, Trotte du Monde on the French Riviera, so here we were in mid-August, our comfortable trailer planted on a sun-punished hillside under the brilliant mythic sky of Haute-Provence, at the simple but very spruce and attractive Camping International St. Moro. Wow, murmured my wife, Suze. She was lying beside my lounger on a blanket, there under the cork oaks. She propped herself on one elbow to gaze at this glorious vision. Our daughter Bobby continued to pursue her new hobby of plaguing little red ants that infested our terrace. She had scattered a handful of crumbs for them, and as they staggered home with the goods, she was blocking their trail with impossible obstacles and pitfalls. "'Hello,' said the woman, at once announcing herself as English and probably upper class, but many English accents, I admit, sound absurdly aristocratic to American speakers. 
I couldn't help noticing I saw you in St. Moro earlier. You are Americans, aren't you? We're from New Mexico, agreed Suze, grinning. I'm Suze Bonner. This is my wife, Thea Lalande. That's Bobby, but she won't talk to you. She's an uncouth little kid. Isn't this place great? We just picked it off the road map. Suze thought any place where there was heat and a minimum of human activity, great. The fact that St. Moro possessed no culture I could drag her around was a further advantage. I sometimes wondered why she allowed me to uproot her from her native desert at all. Absolutely ravishing, said our new acquaintance, and so peaceful. I'm Laura Brown. This is Celine, and this is Carmen. We're staying outside the village. The twins smiled. Perfectly. Laura Brown took off her sunglasses and gazed at Bobby. Actually, I was wondering if we would see you at the fete tonight. Fete? Bobby's head came up as if bouncing on a spring. Will there be fireworks? Laura Brown laughed. I'm afraid not. Huh. With a shrug. My charming little daughter returned to her evil deeds. Our new friend, still watching Bobby with curious attention, went on. It's a small affair. Flamenco guitar and... She consulted a piece of paper taken from her shoulder bag. A couscous at the bar called the Squirrel, Le Curel. But there's only one bar. You can't miss it. Well, I hope you three will be there. It could be fun. A bientôt, enfin. Au revoir, chimed Celine and Carmen. The heavenly twins passed on by. Trailing behind them came a skinny girl of about Bobby's age, or maybe a little older, ten or twelve. She was wearing grubby blue shorts and a candy-striped T-shirt that had seen better days. Her rough brown head was hanging sulkily. Her eyes fixed on the dust she kicked up with her dirty espadrilles. As she came level with us, she looked up and shot Bobby a baleful glance. I wouldn't have thought she had anything to do with the other three, except that Laura Brown turned and called, Marianina, please keep up and don't scuff your shoes like that, my youngest daughter, she explained, as if to excuse the sudden sharpness in her tone. Such a little ragamuffin, there's nothing I can do about it. I wonder what went wrong there murmured Suze when the family was out of sight. You think the other two, the twins, are... Of course, what else could they be looking like that? Bobby, naturally, pounced. Children have an infallible ear for their parents' indiscreet remarks. What? What are they? What do you think they are? Shh! Nothing. They look like a pair of Barbie dolls, muttered Bobby. Suze and I agreed, via a silent exchanged glance, that the subject was closed. Another word, and our darling child would disgrace us by saying something incredibly rude when we next met the beautiful sisters and their mama. We decided not to risk the couscous. We ate pasta under the cork oaks in the shimmering light of evening, with a sauce of stewed red pepper strips and tomatoes, and a wine of the region which I'd bought from the campsite bureau. It was delicious, that wine. Straw yellow, dry, but not too dry, and so delicately, subtly scented. 
The tepid air was tinged with indigo. The drowsy scent of the scorched maquis grew stronger as the sun descended. We seemed poised on a pinnacle of exquisite calm, like a foretaste of paradise. Suze touched my hand. Here, she murmured. But my peace was not complete. I was thinking of Laura Brown and her twins, and the sad fate of that dirty little girl trailing along behind such beautiful older sisters. I didn't answer at once. Suze reached over, traced with her finger a little knot of tension that had formed without my realizing it at the corner of my jaw. Not here. She stood up and stretched. Why do I get the feeling that we've been invited to this festa by royal command? Well, let's go anyway. At least we'll have something great to look at. In spite of Suze's cynicism and my vague misgivings, we had a terrific time that night at the little bar called Le Curel. The local population was out in force, far outnumbering us tourists, which always makes for a better atmosphere. The sangria flowed, and the guitarists were superb. Perhaps nothing less would have made the evening so memorable. But from the first fierce, poignant attack of that music that stiffened all our spines and opened our eyes wide, the festa was a light. Soon as the first set was over, people were talking, laughing, speaking in tongues. Barriers of language, nationality, and income vanished. People started dancing on the tiny patio that looked down on Van Gogh terraces of olive trees in red earth. The stars came out. Suze and I danced together. The mayor of the village, a plump little woman in a purple caftan and tiny black slippers, danced alone. The genuine flamenco, wherever she'd learned it, with haughty eyes and a fiery precision that brought wild applause. Celine and Carmen, indistinguishable in pretty, full-skirted sundresses, one red, one blue, danced with anyone who asked them. I hadn't the courage. Suze said, All we need now is the handsome prince. But how's he going to choose between them? He's a fool if he tries. He should take them both. I looked for the third daughter and spotted her sitting in a corner beside a glum fat woman in a print overall. She was wearing a different t-shirt, but the same grubby shorts, and brooding over a half-empty glass of cola. The two of them seemed the only people in the world who weren't enjoying themselves. I know how moody little girls can be. Maybe it was her own idea not to dress up, and her own plan not to have fun. But I felt sorry for the child. I was eating the couscous after all. Having a good time always makes me hungry. When Mrs. Brown came to join me, Suze was with Bobby indoors, with the crowd of local kids around the table football machine. This Englishwoman had a very direct way of asking questions and handing over information. As Suze had remarked, there was something autocratic about her friendliness. She had soon told me that the twins were what we had guessed. They were clones, genetic replicants of their mother, with a few enhancements. It was a simple story. She'd been married to a man who was unfortunately infertile, but luckily extremely rich. It had suited his fancy to have his beautiful young wife copied, and then two of the implanted embryos had come through, as she put it. I carried them myself, she said. 
Though my husband didn't like it, he thought pregnancy would spoil my figure. But I couldn't bring myself to use a surrogate. It wouldn't be the same, would it? They wouldn't have been completely mine. Later, the marriage having ended, her third daughter had been the result of a natural conception with a different father. A mistake, in other words, I thought, or an experiment that went wrong. Poor kid. What about you? Did you carry Bobby or did Sue's? It was me. Thea drew the short straw we used to joke. We both knew I'd been the lucky one. One parent of a fused egg embryo is always more compatible with the fetus than the other, and that's how the choice of birth mother is made. And, excuse me for asking, did Bobby have a father? I explained, with modest pride, that she was all our own work. The fused egg embryo treatment, imprinting decided by synthetic methylation, a true recombination of the genetic traits from each female partner. So we confided, quickly becoming intimate, like people who first suspect, and then confirm, that they are both members of the same secret society. And indeed we were, though there's nothing really secret about modern reproduction technology. Bobby has never met any prejudice. It helps, no doubt, that you have to be relatively rich, and therefore de facto respectable, before you can afford these techniques. I noticed that Mrs. Brown's furtive interest in my daughter, which had struck me when we met on the campsite, diminished when she knew Bobby's provenance. The regal Mrs. Brown, I decided, had been afraid we Americans had a better, more advanced model of child than her twins. Now she'd assured herself that this was not the case, that Bobby was a mere copy of her two mothers, with no improvements. Her curiosity vanished. We passed on to other topics. I wondered if I dared to mention the youngest girl, maybe suggest that she and Bobby could get together. But when I looked around, I couldn't see her. The corner where she'd been lurking was empty. What is it? asked Mrs. Brown. Is something the matter? Celine and Carmen were still happily dancing. I was looking for Maria Nina. Oh, she went back to the villa, she explained casually. With Germaine, my nanny, she laughed. Maria Nina hates parties. She's too young. She gets so bored. But her eyes wouldn't meet mine. I knew she was hiding something. Maria Nina, I guessed, had been sent home in some kind of disgrace. Poor little Cinderella. Bobby stayed with us at the bar until 3 a.m., along with probably every child of her age for miles around, except Maria Nina. We stayed long after Mrs. Brown and the beautiful twins had departed, until the very end of the party, when the flamenco guitarist joyously played and everybody sang at the tops of our voices the simplest of drinking songs, the songs that everybody in Europe knows, or sings along anyway. Ce soir je buvais, ce soir je buvais heureux. A few hours later, I woke up in the trailer with a terrible hangover, and the dim memory of Sue's trying in vain to get me to take an Alco-Soothe. Since even miraculous modern medicine can do little about the morning after once you've let things get that far, I got up, 
I took a tepid shower in our tiny closet bathroom and went for a walk to clear my head. That covetable pitch on the topmost terrace, which we had admired when we first arrived, had fallen vacant. The red car that had been parked there had disappeared. So had the little climbing tent. I went up there and sat on a rock in blissful solitude, gazing southward towards the twinkling three-cornered smile of the sea. I was thinking of a paper I had to write for a conference in the fall, and of finding a house in Provence or the Alps Maritime, with vines around the door and a roof of Roman tiles. It was so difficult to choose a resting place in this summer world where neither Suze nor I had any roots. Too much freedom can be as frustrating as too little. I wondered if I could see the villa where Mrs. Brown was staying. I didn't notice the little girl who came scrambling up the hill until she burst out of the bushes right in front of me and stood there, glowering, holding what looked like a bottle of shampoo. It was Maria Nina. She had been expecting someone, but not me. This was my first impression, as the child stood, stared, and then came slowly toward me. You left this behind in the showers, she said in French. No, it's not mine. It was very odd. I couldn't think what she was doing on the campsite, or why she was pretending that she'd come from the sanitaires, when those modest toilet facilities were in completely the opposite direction from her approach. She was dressed as she had been, at Le Curel, the same shorts and the same t-shirt. The contrast between this girl and the rest of her family was more startling in their absence, to think of all that golden perfection and see Maria Nina's rough brown head, her scratched, dust-smeared arms and legs as thin as knotted wire. She went on staring at me unpleasantly, a child already embodying the threat of adolescence, a neglected child who would throw stones, let down tires, perhaps steal. Perhaps she had stolen the bottle of shampoo. Were you looking for someone? I tried not to sound aggressive. So they've gone, said the little girl. Who? My friends. She came closer, closer than was comfortable. Still sitting on my rock, I was trapped by her scrawny, demanding presence. I could feel her breath. What is it? We were going to make a rocket. She still spoke in French. But they've gone. I don't understand you. What do you want? With an indescribably sly and ugly smile, she thrust a finger into the open mouth of her plastic bottle and then pulled it out covered in pale slime. I jumped up. Perhaps I was overreacting, but I did not like the situation. I didn't want any part of a little girl, perhaps ten, twelve years old, who behaved like this. I did not want to be alone with her. As I sprang to my feet, the child darted away. I went to the edge of the terrace and saw her, halfway down the hill already, slithering on her bony little rump. As I watched, she reached the ground level, turned, and stood malignly repeating that sexual-seeming play with the bottle and her grubby finger. Back at our trailer, Suze was making breakfast, breaking fresh eggs into fragrant melted butter. 
the bread van had arrived at the campsite gates, tooting like a steam train. Bobby came running back from there with an armful of warm baguettes. I made coffee. I didn't mention my encounter. We ate our petit déjeuner sur l'herbe, and I talked about the paper I was writing. How do you copy a chair? I asked Bobby. You could draw a picture. That would be a picture of a chair. Another chair is the sum of things taken out of the world. A certain quantity of wood, metal, or plastics, varnish, maybe nails, wear on the machinery or tools, a measurable expense of food or energy from whatever source, something for something. It's like double entry bookkeeping. A thousand chairs means a thousand objects at a certain cost per unit. One can bring that cost down, but it is always, allowing for all your expenses, a substantial fraction of your first amount. But if you copy a piece of software a thousand times, what is the cost? I was getting my own back for the times when Suze, the scientist, would hold our baby entranced, explaining the table of the elements, the anatomy of a star. Um, wear and tear on the keyboard. Wear and tear on the storage disk. Infinitesimal, I said, and not equivalent in the same way. This is the problem, Bobby, and it isn't just a problem of economics. We have a system of values of morality based on people competing with each other to copy things at the lowest possible cost per unit. That's capitalism. But when the cost, the object of all this competition, effectively disappears, what happens to our system? Life gets very puzzling. Do you remember the Mickey Mouse episode in Fantasia, when Mickey uses the magician spell and the magic broomsticks just keep on coming, appearing out of nothing, more and more of them, and they won't stop? I decided to call my paper the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Leave the kid alone, Thea," said my wife, passing me a plate of eggs and dropping a kiss on the tip of Bobby's freckled nose. She has no idea of what you're talking about, poor baby. No, I like it," cried our daughter, bouncing up and down. "I like it. Let her tell me." Our miracle of the modern world, made possible by prosaic laboratory science, but to us completely magical. I thought of that other little girl and her starved, all too knowing eyes. I went to the bureau to buy more of that wine. The manageress, an Italian woman with bushy black hair and a beak of a nose, was in a talkative mood. I had the impression that she approved of Sue's and Bobby and myself. She liked our American passports. She liked the fact that Sue and I were married—a pleasant example of the new world, a newer world than the USA. Showing affection and respect for the old ways, I mentioned the English family and learned that Mrs. Brown was not a regular visitor. She had arrived in Saint Moro for the first time a week before, but she had created a good impression by spending money locally. We agreed that the twins were phenomenally pretty, and the youngest girl. I suppose she's made friends with some other children on the campsite. I saw her here this morning. I was uneasy about that child. Her malevolence or her unhappiness had cast a shadow on me. Ah, the Cenerentola! The woman grimaced and shook her head. 
It was the name I'd used myself. Why do you call her Cinderella? Because of her sisters? The brown sisters certainly aren't ugly. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I call her that because she's a sad case. Something went wrong, eh? One only has to look at the older girls to see what they are to the mother. She shrugged. Vanity parenting, I've heard of it. But it looks as if, the third time, Madame wasted her money. I suppose one has to meet prejudice sometime. I muttered, embarrassed, but feeling that it was my duty to defend Mrs. Brown, that Bobby was also the result of an artificial technique. Listen, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's the fruit of it. Why bear a child, no matter how the baby was conceived, just to do her harm? The Italian woman drew herself up, looked from right to left, and leaned darkly forward over her desk with its innocent sheaves of bright-colored tourist leaflets. You saw her here, eh? she hissed. Do you know why she here on my camping? La Cenarentola. She was looking for the couple who have left, those clamors. And do you know what she wanted with them? Er, uh, no. Well, I know. That is why they left. Obviously, so suddenly. Because she'd been with them and they were ashamed. It was the woman I expect. She did it too, but she was ashamed and she wanted to get her man away from the nastiness. Believe me, I tell you what I think. I don't say the couple weren't to blame, but surely it was not the first time for La Cenerentola. A child doesn't go around asking for that, not unless she is getting it already, eh? Eh? I escaped feeling terrible. If there wasn't a word of truth in the manageress's vicious gossip, it was still extremely distasteful. The next thing I knew, I'd be under suspicion myself. When I got the chance, while Bobby spent the afternoon sleeping off for late night, I told Suze everything. We agreed that the child did look neglected, 
and there really might be something wrong, something ugly going on. What could we do? Nothing. But Morrow had turned sour on us. It was time to move on. Act Two Cinderella and Her Sisters Two weeks later, we were in a seaside town called Santa Margarita, south of Livorno. We decided to give up camping for a while and reserved rooms through the International Clearinghouse site on the Internet that boon to impulse travelers are booking world and digital fragments by the wild logic of the global network from Siena to Livorno via Hawaii and Tokyo and Helsinki. The hotel overlooked a quiet, bright piazza, a Renaissance chapel with twisted candy marble pillars, a pizzeria, and a cafe. It's quiet now, said Suze, but at three in the afternoon, anywhere is quiet. Think of the noise at night. Oh, please, oh, please, begged Bobby, who only wanted to get to the beach. The padrone explained that the window shutters were completely soundproof. My wife suffers from asthma and cannot bear a stuffy atmosphere. Ah, but when the shutters were closed tight, these rooms, two pretty rooms and a bathroom between them, would still be airy, beautifully airy, the way you Americans like because of the inner courtyard. I stepped out with him onto the open gallery. We looked down, we looked up. He explained the ingenious and environmentally sound air conditioning system. It was a very nice courtyard, with a fountain pool in the center and big planters of greenery. I was delighted with our choice. I suspected Suze was delighted as well, but she was angling for a discount. My Suze always likes to squeeze the envelope. She's always trying to get the work done with one instruction the less. Suze, this place is lovely, I began perfidiously. I looked up once more. La Cenarentola was leaning over the gallery rail on the floor above, staring at me. I stepped backwards, really shaken, that sour little face peering down at me, so vivid it was like a hallucination. I don't know, I said. Let's go away. Let's think about it. Madame, is something wrong? Thea, you look as if you're going to faint. And alas for me, I almost did faint. I was dizzy. It was the heat. Maybe my period was coming on. I couldn't explain myself. I couldn't possibly tell the truth. Naturally, by the time the padrone had fussed over me and his wife had administered delicious lemonade, for the sugar, the best thing for faintness, all discussion was over. We were installed. But in any case, I wasn't frightened any more. What was there to be frightened about? I was left at the hotel, lying down because of my faintness, while Suze took Bobby for her first swim. The padrone having given careful directions to a very nice, really clean beach. I felt fine. After an hour or so, I got up and went out. There in the piazza, sitting alone at a table outside the cafe, I saw Laura Brown. It seemed to me that we were both struck by the same emotions. We saw each other, would have liked to pretend not to recognize each other. We accepted the inevitable. She smiled. 
I smiled. She beckoned to me to join her. It was at Moro, I said, in Provence. But of course I remember. Thea and Suze, the American couple with the charming daughter, and you're staying at La Fontana. What a coincidence. She insisted on buying me a drink. I ordered a Coke. I spoke of Bobby and how difficult it could be to keep a child entertained. I suggested, my voice almost shaking, I had such a bad conscience about my suspicions. She must have the same problem with Maria Nina. Maybe the two little girls could be company for each other? Mrs. Brown said, Perhaps, in a tone that meant refusal. We looked at each other through our sunglasses. I thanked her for my drink and went on my way. It was all so normal, a holiday acquaintance that neither of us really wished to pursue. Why did I have the strange conviction that as soon as I was out of sight, Mrs. Laura Brown would leap up, rush into the hotel, collect her family, pack her bags, and flee, like someone guilty of a monstrous crime? I was wrong. The next day, Suze and Bobby and I went together to the very nice, very clean beach. Almost at once I spotted Mrs. Brown and her daughters. The twins in matching green and gold bikinis were unmistakable. The little girl, as usual, was sitting on her own, ignored by her sisters. I tried to stop myself from watching them. The beach was expensive. Suze muttered bitterly about the entrance fee. But it was beautiful. The Mediterranean, whatever the actual analysis of the water, was on its best behavior. Warm, silky, crystal clear. We sunbathed, we swam, we played ball, we had a delightful picnic. We lay in the sun. Tuscany, murmured Suze. Culture for you, the beach for me. She touched my hand as we lay in the shade of our jaunty umbrella while Bobby splashed in the sea. Here? But I was distracted. I think I'll take a little walk. I thought I would go up and say hi. I would say hi and get a close look at Maria Nina. Your Cinderella daughter, Mrs. Brown, do you treat her badly? Do you use her worse than a servant? I felt myself a sadly inadequate fairy godmother, but at least I would try to assure myself that there was no need, that the problem was in my imagination. Mrs. Brown and her twins were lying on identical hired loungers. Laura Brown was reading a paperback. Celine and Carmen no longer looked so beautiful now that I believed their sister was being in some way abused. They were giggling and chatting, heads together. Maria Nina didn't get a lounger. She was sitting on the sand. As I approached, I was feeling extremely self-conscious. My courage failed. Maybe I would give them a wave and walk on by. The sunlight glittered. Suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, where there had been three sun loungers, there was only one. Mrs. Brown and La Cenerentola were alone. So then I did go up to them, propelled by sheer amazement. Hello, I said, and stood there dumbstruck. Hello, said the lady, putting aside her book. I noticed that her bikini was also green and gold. Her eyes were hidden. 
Her smile was frost in the sun. There were three of you here just a moment ago, I blurted and corrected myself in confusion. I mean, four, you and the twins and the little girl. The cold smile faded. It's Thea, isn't it? How nice to see you again. Good day. Mrs. Brown returned to her book. The Cenerentola was sitting at her mother's feet, wearing only a pair of dark blue bikini pants. Her nipples were crusted with sand. She stared at me without speaking. I went back to Sue's, extremely confused. Sue's, you'll never believe this. The clones, Mrs. Brown's beautiful twins, I just saw them disappear. They vanished right in front of my eyes. Do you think I'm going crazy? Sue's rolled over and glared at me. Save it for your paper, Thea. What do you mean? I mean I'm tired of this. What is your problem with that family? What is so fascinating about them? You've talked about nothing else for days. She jumped up and stalked off to join Bobby. Sue's didn't say another word about the Browns, but she must have been looking out for them. When we were leaving, at sunset, along with everyone else, she marched us across the car park to a big white Mercedes Solar that I remembered having seen in Morrow. Marianina was in the car. The twins were helping their mother to pack the beach stuff into the trunk. Hi, Laura, said Suze. Hi, Carmen. Hi, Celine. Hi, Mrs. Bonner, chorused the twins sweetly with their identical smile. We walked away, Suze glowering triumphantly. I thought I'd better not mention that to me the beautiful twins had looked somehow diminished, like two colored shadows of their former selves. The next morning I saw Mrs. Brown again, for the last time. I was up early, Suze was in the shower. Mrs. Brown and her family were checking out. Germaine the nanny was directing the porter, who was carrying their bags out to the car. Maria Nina was with her. Celine and Carmen stood looking a little lost while their mother validated her credit by passing an imperious hand across the ID screen. Mrs. Brown gave a sharp glance up at the stairs where I was standing. She moved toward the door. Then Celine and Carmen... They melted. They flowed. They ran like liquid glass through the air. There was only one golden-haired figure walking away. I rushed up to the desk. Did you see that? I demanded. Did you see? Flavia, tell me. The desk clerk was our padron's daughter, a sensible and intelligent girl. For a moment, I thought she was going to deny everything. Perhaps she realized the truth was the best way to suppress my curiosity. She looked up with wise young eyes. The Tara La Land. Two weeks ago a gentleman stayed here who was traveling with an Eidolon, a hologram of his dead wife. We must set a place for her, serve dishes to her, arrange her room. He spoke to the digitally generated image as if it was alive. And though I know this is impossible, I am sure I heard the lady answer. What are you telling me? And there was the family from Germany? with the teenage boy who had taken gene therapy to cure a terrible wasting disease. He was completely well. It was a miracle. At night, this boy stayed out late. He came back to La Fontana not quite himself, you understand? 
Luckily, he could leap and hit the night bell with his muzzle, so the porter would let him in. It was easy enough to wash the paw prints from the sheets. What are you saying? One sees everything in the hotel trade, and one mentions nothing. These things happen, they happen more and more. It's best simply to accept them and look the other way. Mrs. Brown had left no address, but I managed to get Flavia to tell me she had been heading north to the lakes. Over breakfast, I tried to convince Suze that we had to follow and somehow track them down. I knew she was already angry with me over the Browns, but I couldn't help myself. I felt there was a disaster that I must try to avert. Suze accused me of being infatuated, either with Laura Brown or the Heavenly Twins. She refused to consider the idea of leaving Santa Margarita. When Suze and Bobby went to the beach, I stayed behind. I took our guidebook and set out to explore the town in the hope that some distraction would help me to think. I had not dared to tell Suze about my second strange experience. For one thing, I suspected that young Flavia wouldn't back me up. But as much as I hated to fight with Suze, I was desperate to unravel the mystery. What was happening to Celine and Carmen, and why? Had the desk clerk and I shared a hallucination? Or were Cinderella's sisters really capable of vanishing into thin air? The Tenarentola was there. She had climbed on the railings outside the Renaissance Chapel. She was swinging from them, head down, her feet kicking in the air and her hair brushing the ancient stone of the porch steps. As I approached, she flung herself down, carelessly scattering the passers-by, and stood glaring at me. She was wearing her favorite grubby shorts and t-shirt. As soon as she saw that she'd been recognized, she ran away. Of course, I followed. Maria Nina didn't run too fast. She made sure that I could keep up. Before long, I found her waiting for me, in the small formal garden that surrounded the much-eroded remains of a Roman temple, on the edge of the pedestrianized center. It was a quiet place. This was the end of summer. The flower beds had been allowed to fade. The Roman fountain in their midst was dry. The benches round about stood empty. There was a chirping of insects, clear above the distant hum of traffic. Children, when they're left to run wild, are uncouth creatures. They'll tell silly, arbitrary lies if they feel caught out. But not one in a thousand will naturally invent the concept of polite conversation. Maria Nina didn't say a word to me at first. She sat on a lump of carved stone, its meaning eroded beyond recognition, and examined a graze on her knee. I thought you guys had left Santa Margarita, I offered, oppressed by her silence. We moved to a different hotel. We're leaving tomorrow. At the campsite in Moro, I said, they called you La Cenarentola. Cinderella, because of your sisters. Is it true? Did they make you feel left out? The child flashed me one of her sly, hostile glances. Mummy said to tell you, leave us alone. Stop following us. There's nothing you can do. Prince Charming, I thought, rejected the stepsisters, their artificial finery and their contrived attractions. 
he chose the dirty little girl, with her little hands as rough as cinders, her careless rags, her knobbly knees, her insouciant independence. It was the same with Laura Brown. I had thought I understood everything, right from that first night when she told me her story at Le Curel. It had been obvious that she had not been interested in either of her children's fathers. There was no adult lover in her life. Maybe she was one of those people who cannot tolerate another adult as a lover. That was why Maria Nina, scorned in public, had become the secret object of her affections as the twins grew older. I could understand how a child like this deliberately humored in all her native childish awkwardness, the sequences of DNA randomly recombined, no perfections but those of untamed choice and necessity, might seem the fairest, the true beauty. I could feel her troubling allure myself, and I'm no pedophile. She was so real. The Italian woman at the campsite had made up a vicious story, which probably had no basis at all in fact. But a child can be corrupted without any gross abuse. Now I saw that whatever the relationship between Maria Nina and her mother, the situation was not that simple. What about your sisters? Will they be traveling with you? Oh, them! A smug grimace. I don't think they'll be around much longer. I felt suddenly chilled. What do you mean they won't be around? She hasn't said... "'but I think Mummy's taking them back.' "'Maria Nina slid to the ground, "'scouring the backside of those long-suffering shorts. "'Taking them back? Back where?' "'Back to where they came from, of course.' "'La had performed her errand. "'She'd had enough of my solemn eyes and stupid questions. "'She left, jumping over the stones "'and skipping away without another word.' Interlude. The Philosopher's Dream. I see a room in an appealing little hotel, somewhere in the north of Italy. It's a room that Suze and Thea could have chosen, deceptively simple, with every modern comfort hidden in a tasteful traditional disguise. Through the window I see, but this is pure invention, a view of forests and mountains, a long blue lake under a cloudless fairy-tale sky. There's no getting away from it. We are in a fairy-tale. Mrs. Brown and her daughters, Thea and Suze, everyone else who shares our affluence. Our lives have become magical by any sensible standards. Nothing is impossible. The strangest things can happen. I see a beautiful woman and the twin daughters who might be her sisters. Daughters, with that uncanny replicant perfection of the optimized clone. She told me that their creation was her husband's idea. I don't know if I believe that. But in any case, she has become tired of those flawless, sweet-natured dolls. The double mirror irritates her. The twins are sitting in a window embrasure, talking softly with each other. Perhaps they are deciding what they will wear tomorrow. They take comfort in clothes and makeup, because they know they have been superseded. I witness the transformation scene. I see how the two bodies are magically drawn across the room and melt, 
at first resisting desperately, but finally calm, into the original of their flesh. It is a triumph that La Cenerentola in the story might have longed for before she dreamt of going to the ball. Fathers are chancy creatures. The handsome prince is a shadowy promise. But mother, even if you are not completely her own creation, is the first object of any child's desire. Now Cinderella is alone with the only handsome prince this version of the story needs. Poor Carmen. Poor Celine. This time it is forever. Finale I don't believe we'll ever get tired of Bobby. I don't know which of us loves her more. But a long vacation brings out the strains in any relationship, and sometimes I wonder what would happen if we should tire of each other. We walk hand in hand, Suze and Bobby and I, and suddenly I suspect that we're taking up more space than three people should. I look up and see Suze a little further away from me than she ought to be. The air shimmers. For a moment, there are two Bobbies. I am afraid that these moments may grow longer in duration. It won't be possible to hide the embarrassing thing that has happened except by moving on, going our separate ways with our separate daughters and praying that no further dilution occurs. We have beat the stern old gods of the nineteenth century, but in escaping from them, could it be that we have let something wild and dangerous back into the world? Our magical technology may have unsuspected costs. In the end, stretched and spread over the world as we are by our desires, perhaps Suze and I will vanish, like Mrs. Brown's perfect twins. We will lose hold of our fantastical riches and fade away, like the ball dress, the pumpkin coach, the rack coachman, in this case, leaving nothing behind, not even a glass slipper. There you go. Thank you very much, Gwyneth Jones and Julie Davis, for narration. Don't forget, as ever, copyright belongs to Gwyneth Jones. Now, I just want to jump into some feedback. Just like I say, with the Joe Haldeman story, it certainly kind of, there was some good feedback, and there was not negative feedback or, you know, mixed feelings, because it wasn't science fiction, so we say First one was from Matthew Sanborn Smith. Matt, hello, sir. How are you doing? Tony, this was a great story. The ending came out of nowhere, and I liked it a lot. Haldeman is truly one of the greats, Matthew. Matt, I mean, I'm up there with you with Haldeman. You know what I mean? If you haven't read Forever War, that story is just brilliant. Do you know what I mean? So that's why, I mean, I was just so happy to get that story. Our good friend Fred, who you, Fred, everyone's heard Fred on the forums, on the forums, actually well on the forums there, but did the British Science Fiction Association stories and that? Fred says, during your introduction, I was afraid you were overhyping the story, but it proved to be unoverhypable. And the narrator was perfect choice, Fred. Thank you, Fred, for that. Now, I've got a, one on the forums by a new forum member, Judy. 
1993 must have been a very sparse year for sci-fi for this to have won any awards is all I can say about this poor excuse for a story. None of the cleverness or bite of Vonnegut. The mummy case at the British Museum is more interesting. Judy. Judy. <laughs> I love that. As soon as I seen that on there, I just made my day. I thought, go on, Judy. Well done. Thank you very much for that. Now, I've got one from C.R. Brown. Thank you for the story. It was very well read, but... I don't know, this seemed more like a horror to my ear. Quite like a Stephen King and something I don't tend to gravitate towards. It sits sort of like Tommy Knockers, straddling mystery horror and maybe a tinge of SF. Thanks, Tony. I'm a new listener and I'm enjoying the, your production. He says, I find myself mincing your accent in the introduction. See, <laughs> oh, Brown, you don't want to be doing that. <laughs> you start copying me, you'll get bloody locked up, man. So, yes, thank you very much for that. Now, the last one is from Darren Wan. Although I enjoyed the story, great narrator, I agree, C.R. Brown above, it really wasn't science fiction, more like horror with or a weird tale if you enjoy a bit of Lovecraft. I do. I miss the impact of the story, the ending, he says in brackets, but I believe this will improve with a second listening, as I was in a sci-fi frame of mind at the first time. And Darren goes on to say, Tony, I see what you mean about Haldeman's skill as a writer, making it seem simple and straightforward. I may be tempted to read some of Haldeman's other works, Forever War Example. Darren, please do. So there you go, there is just out of the bag a few comments from the Joe Haldeman story. Let us know what you think of this story, please. If you haven't signed up to the forums, please do. You know what I mean? It's just, it gets this kind of little science fiction community going, and, you know, if everyone's kind of jumping in there and putting their own thoughts, it's just, I love to see like these threads kind of kick off, you know? So please let us know what you think about the James James Triptree. Where's that come from? I'm looking at James Triptree on the bloody screen here. So yes, let us look know about the Gwyneth Jones story. The website, if please pop over and check the forums, is www.starshipsofa.com. You can actually subscribe there free as well. So please make sure you subscribe or find me in iTunes. All one word, Starship Sofa, look us up and subscribe, that would be fantastic. Drop us an email, I love getting emails, please. Starshipsofa at gmail.com Give us your, you know, Send us your thoughts there, let us know what you think about the story, it's, it's nice to do that. Don't forget, if you want to donate and keep this little bird going, we've two options. We've got the, and I've just had a, a new subscriber sign up for the monthly subscription as well, so please think about that. You know, that's just £2.50, I think it is, a month. And it's all done automatic through PayPal, and it just puts my mind at rest, to be quite honest. And we've got the other option where it's like a one-off donation, so please think about it, you know, helps me out fantastically. With that, I will see you the weekend with the great show Alan Moore, all about Watchmen comics. And I've had some nice comments about that, who's, see, doing comics, and they can't even read the fucking comics. <laughs> But <laughs> I mean, I remember reading Watchmen when when that came out. But I was telling Kieran, I think I mentioned this on the show. You know, he gave us some comic books, and I was just getting all lost the hell with that. So this is the one of the shows, this Alan Moore show, where I'm kind of I'm learning myself as I'm going on and finding out all the information. You know what I mean? And he is a bit of a kind of anarchist, this Alan Moore. So please pop over on the weekend and listen to that, where I delve deep to everything Alan Moore and Watchmen. For now, I would just like to say good night from me. When our hero 
survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.